Well, good morning. Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter number 3. I hope you brought your Bible this morning. Open it up or click it open, whatever you have. 1 Peter chapter number 3. We are in the middle of our series in 1 Peter and in a series within 1 Peter of how to glorify God with your life while you suffer. If you remember, this part of our series in 1 Peter started in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In fact, once you look at that before we actually get into our text this morning, throughout our messages, we've seen that we will suffer as God's people. And we are to follow the example and the character of Jesus Christ when we suffer. And, and really the introduction to this main body of Peter's epistle here is verses 11 and 12 of chapter number 2. Let me read it for you to remind you of the context of what we're talking about here in 1 Peter, particularly in this series of messages. He says, he writes in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter's giving us perspective. Here's the real war that's taking place in our world. When you face persecution, you might be confused of what the real, the real war is. He says, listen, it's a war against the souls of mankind and against your soul. In verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's the unbelieving world, honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter expects that the unbelieving world will speak evil of us. In other words, they will persecute us. They will come against us. And we are to respond with honorable conduct and with good works. And when we respond with those good deeds, God can be glorified. And then we look practically, what does that look like? And we looked at that in verse 13 in chapter, uh, chapter 2. It means that we honor and submit to the government God's put over us. So Peter goes through four different institutions, earthly institutions, yet government. Verse 18, it's human employment. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, actually through verse 7, you look at the home. And in verses 1 and 2, you see women who are Christians suffering under the hand of a person who is an unbelieving husband. And now we're in verse 8. And this is the fourth human institution, the one that Christ himself establishes, established on this earth. And now we're dealing with the church. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, you can see he starts off, Peter writes, saying, finally, all of you, and Peter is speaking to the, now the entire church, not just groups in the church, but everyone, the church body. And he starts really in verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 4. He speaks to the church. In fact, look at chapter 4 in verse 9. You can see he speaks to the church about hospitality. And again, that's within the context of the church. Verse 10, using our gifts to serve one another. Again, the context of that is the local church. Look down in verse 17 of chapter 4. He says, he talks about judgment beginning first with the household of God. That's a reference to the church. My point is this, is that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at how the church is to respond to suffering. 
And so really that's going to go on really to the end of November for the next five weeks. Then, uh, and then we're going to have a break. We're going to go through Christmas vacation and have a Christmas um, series of lessons, of sermons. And then we'll pick up back in chapter 5 in January. So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about how the church can glorify God while we suffer, while we suffer. And so look at with me in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. And we'll be, our text this morning will be verse 8 through verse 12. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? I'll read it out loud as you read in your own heart and mind. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's ask God to bless the teaching and preaching of his word. Father, we are thankful that we have the truth of your word before us. What a blessing that we live in a country at this present time where we are able to gather, hear from your word, and even beyond that, that we actually, each one of us, have the ability to have the entire written word of God in our hands. We praise you for that. Bless your word. Spirit of God, move among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For my son's birthday, we decided to go on a, a trip and uh, have an overnight camping experience in a tent. That's a lot of fun, if you're young. No, it's a lot of fun. And uh, we found ourselves in this campground literally all by ourselves. We were the only tent campers there. And so it was very quiet. And when it got dark, it got really dark. And in fact, we had a little fire going, but we started walking around the campground. We had our flashlights on. And at one point, we turned the flashlights off and looked around us. And that wasn't scary. It wasn't like anything was going to happen. But all of a sudden, you started hearing these creepy critters, you know. And you see these little eyes around you, and you hear something run past you, and quickly you turn the flashlight on or whatever. And, and we went and sat around the fire, and when we put that fire on and really it started blazing, that fire lit up that entire campsite, and it gave warmth to us. You know, when the sun set, it got cold, it got dark, but that fire was, was a light that gave us the ability to see and heat so that we could be warm. You know, when you sit around a fire like that, you think about a lot of things. It's a great place to sit there and just think, isn't it? So we were sitting there thinking, and I was thinking, as I'm thinking about my sermon for this week, I was thinking, this is a great illustration of the church. We live in a very dark world, don't we? God has placed his church as these, as these lights to, to, to shine forth truth and to really bless the world that is connected to the church. 
And as I was reading our text this morning, I, I really thought this is a great illustration of the church. And we, we could see really in verse 8 that we are to shine the light of our character. And in verse 9, we are to shine the, the heat of our conduct. There's a sense where our character, our love, it, it shines out as truth in this world. And our conduct is like, is like this radiating heat that blesses our world. We live in a dark world, don't we? I think really to, in order to understand the context of what these believers were facing, it's good for us to think about the world that we live in. We have many Christians around the world who are suffering the name of Christ. And even our world, our American society and culture is getting darker and darker. I firmly believe that unless God intervenes by his Holy Spirit with revival in our country, that the church has has difficult and very, um, yeah, very difficult and suffering days ahead for us. I think as a church, we need to wake up to the reality of what church is actually about. I think that's what he does here in these two verses to say, this is how you can be the church in a time of suffering. I think we need to get serious about church and prepare ourselves and frankly, prepare the next generation for the possibility of persecution in our country. I was reading an article this past week that cited some startling statistics, and at least they were startling to me. Starting in 2009, the U.S. population has now more single adult women than married women. And that might be surprising for a number of reasons, but one of that, they said, is due to the fact that uh, Americans are rejecting uh, getting married and having children. So the idea that someone would get, you know, you get married and you have children is kind of something that is, a, is being rejected. But even probably more shocking to me than that was it's the, the rejection of heterosexual relationships. And so this is according to the intelligencer, a data scientist named David Shore. He said that roughly 30% of American women under the age of 25, so that's, I think it's called the Z generation, isn't it? Yeah, Z generation. 30% of American women under the age of 25 are LGBTQ, identified as one of those. Uh, I read a um, Gallup poll that said it was around probably 23%. And who knows, poll, do we even believe polls these days? I don't know. And that might, I don't know if that shocks you or not. I think if you actually were in the public school, you actually probably would realize it might be higher than that. Especially bisexuality is a pretty popular um, belief and something that's adopted in our society here today. Our culture is changing. And, and I'm not making political statements. What I want you to recognize is how quickly things have shifted. I want you to think about this. The, the current Democratic vice president, or current Democratic candidate for presidency, Joe Biden, re do you realize in 24 years ago, 1996, do you realize he signed into to law, or he was one of the ones that, he didn't sign it, he's one that voted into law, the Defense of Marriage Act. You remember that? How many of you are old enough to remember that? Okay. It was saying that marriage is only to be a legal union between a man and a woman as husband and wife. And so that was 24 years ago. Fast forward 24 years to today, I think it was like two weeks ago that he said in a town hall on ABC that an eight-year-old should have the right to be able to not only identify as transgender, but actually have a surgical surgery to have his gender changed to a girl. If you saw that online, that took place. 
In fact, he actually has come out and said that he is in favor of something called the Equality Act, which basically would, would impose this morality upon Christians and churches and Christian organizations. And if you resisted, you would be charged with a hate crime. So think about that in 24 years. And again, I'm not trying to be political. What I'm trying to do is show you the shift within 24 years. Someone who actually had a position publicly, who's now running for president, what is it going to look like in 24 more years from now? I think sometimes as parents and grandparents, we can think we raise our kids to live in a world that we lived in when we were kids. And I think we as a church need to stop thinking that way. We need to start thinking with the reality that the the moral decline of our country is rapidly getting worse. And we need to wake up to the reality of what might be our future for our church if the Lord does doesn't tarry, if the Lord tarries his coming, might be the future for our church and probably likely for our children. And, and again, my, my, my point of this is not to discourage us. My point of this is not to, to cause us to go be necessarily politically active, although we probably should vote. Okay, not probably, you should vote. But Matthew 16, Jesus actually told Peter, this is what's gonna happen. Satan is gonna come against this church. He says, the gates of hell is gonna come against the church, right? But he says it won't overcome it. In fact, he says, John says in 1 John that greater is Jesus who's in us than Satan who's in this world. So my point isn't to discourage us. My point is to prepare. We should be prepared for what God has for our country and possibly what might happen. And, and what, what we should do as a church is we should be the lights that shine forth the character of Christ. We should be the, the lights that radiate the heat of blessing to our world. So how should the church respond to persecution. How can the church glorify God while suffering under persecution? The first point here we have, I don't have a handout for you, so you're going to have to write it down today. Sorry about that. But you can do that in the back of your bulletin there. The first point is the church is to shine the light of Christ's love for one another. I really think verse 8 is speaking to the church, speaking about how we are to treat each other in the church. So look at verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The word finally indicates that Peter is wrapping up the main body of his letter. So like any other good preacher, he says finally, and he has a lot of chapters to go. But he says there, all of you, and that demonstrates that he's speaking to the entire church. So First Peter was written to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And these believers were suffering. And so he was trying to encourage them. And so what he does, he says, first of all, church, let me speak to you and how you should treat one another. And so he gives five adjectives here in verse eight to describe the church's love, the love the church should have for one another. And the first attribute there is unity of mind, unity of mind, literally one-mindedness. Some translations translate this Harmony, which I think is actually a great translation. When you think of harmony, what do you think of? Think of a choir singing, and you have all these different voices, different notes, different pitches, but they're all unified together in one song, singing most of the times the same words. I, yeah, most of the time, sometimes on purpose they're not, but I was... Uh, in a choir when I was in college, it was a large choir, and we traveled around to churches and sang. We would go to the Capitol Rotundas of, in different states we went to. You ever been to a Capitol Rotunda and heard someone sing? Has anyone ever done that in here? It's pretty fun to do. 
And especially when you have people that actually know how to sing, it's even better. And we would all circle around and we would sing. And there's, there's really nothing like standing with a group of people who are singing a cappella and they're harmonizing and they're just singing out to the Lord and their voices. And what a, what a unity that is. And I think the great, um, the reason I think this is a great translation of this is because it gives a great picture. Because when you sing, if you just have the same notes and, and you know, the same even inflections and pitches, it's... It doesn't really, it sounds okay, right? But it's just like, if it's, if it's mono, monotone and if it's just like one, uh, just melody, it, it's not bad, but it doesn't sound the greatest. But when you have these differences that blend together, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful. And I think that's the picture, a great picture of the church. We are all different, yet those differences bring color and variety, yet we're all one. We worship Jesus Christ. We, we all look to the same source of truth. That's the word of God. Unity of mind does not mean that we're all alike, we're all uniform, that we all apply the scriptures in the exact same ways, or we have the same cultural backgrounds, or we're all generationally the same. It means that we are, are all one in our, in our, our goals, our, we have the same eternal goals, we have the same Christ-centered values, we follow the same principles. It might, might look different in different people's lives, but we all come together to worship the same Lord. So we're to shine the light of our testimony. And I say here, the unity that binds us together in Christ. And there's a testimony in that. There's a testimony to our world when we are unified, when we have different people from different ages, when you have young and you have old, you have people and people come in here and go, why are you all together? Like, how, what unites you together? And we say, it's Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. In fact, this is what Jesus Christ's own prayer was for us. When he was praying his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed for his disciples, and then he transitioned to pray for the church. And he says, I do not ask for these only, not just for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And notice that last part. It's really interesting. That, that the world may believe that you've sent me. There's a testimony to the world and the unity of Christ's church. So I think the first attribute here should cause us to ask the question, are we unified as a church? Are we unified? Are we unified around Christ? Do we have his mind? What motivates and directs us? And second, how can the church glorify God while suffering? We are to have the Christ-like attribute of sympathy, of sympathy. Sympathy means to feel someone's pain, to come alongside of someone, to, to invite their pain into your life so that you can provide the comfort of Christ. And we are, as a church, to have this sympathy that bears each other's burdens like Christ did. I mean, if you look at Christ as he walked on this earth, you saw him going around and he invited himself into the pain of other people. He, he approached people who were in quarantine, right? <laughs> the lepers. You weren't allowed to get within six feet of them. No, just kidding. Okay. So enough of that. But they, 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 were, they had to say, they're unclean. Get away. And definitely you couldn't touch them. But Jesus actually invited himself into their life. And he did something remarkable. He actually would touch them. The Bible says that he saw a leper or a leper came to him. 
And he was moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, that I'm willing to heal you, be cleansed. And that touch, I believe, was a touch of sympathy. Jesus touched his pain and really, in the only way Jesus can do, he actually took it away. And there are times in our church when people are going through difficulties and we should invite ourselves into their lives to really experience their pain, to bear their burdens. Sometimes that means, I think, we send a card or maybe a text. Sometimes it means you knock on their door and you just sit with them. Sometimes you don't even have to say anything. Some, I think I've said this before, but sometimes my most uh, joyful memories I've had and uh, in different ministry experiences have been times where I haven't said a word. Some of you find that hard to believe, don't you? But someone's going through some great suffering. Maybe someone even, frankly, I've had a couple of situations where I've had people pass away right in front of me there. And those are things you'd ever forget. And, but you don't say anything. You just sit there, hold that person's hand, and they're crying, and you're crying. And it's sympathy. It's bearing. It's, it's taking on their pain and suffering with them so you can share with them the comfort of Christ. And then third, we are to shine forth brotherly love for others in the church. Brotherly love means that the church is to have love that is devoted to each other like family. So it's like family love, if you want to say it in a modern way. Brotherly love. It's, it's, it's devoting, being devoted to each other like family. And you, you see this as a favorite church attribute of Peter. He presents this many times. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 1. Just notice this. We're not going to read all these texts, but 1 Peter 1, 22, he says, listen, you've been purified by the blood of Christ. You've been purified um, by the obedience to the truth. And he says, here's the purpose for, verse 22 of chapter 1, a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So he says, listen, you've been saved to obey Christ, and that looks like loving those within the family of God. And look over in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Above all, speaking to believers in the church, love one another earnestly. So love those in the church earnestly, since, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then I'm not going to read this one, but you can write down First Peter, or sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. 2 Peter 1, 7, he lists the, the virtues of Christ that we are to put on and he lists brotherly love. So this was evidently a very important attribute for Peter to have the church follow. And that idea came actually directly from Jesus Christ. Right? Remember this in John chapter 15? Jesus was with his disciples there. And he commands them. He says, this is my commandment that you love who? One another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this. That, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus didn't just teach that. Hours later, Jesus, he proved that. And he laid down his life for his friends and for us, his friends. And so, brotherly love. One of the most powerful testimonies, I think, of the church is the love that we have for one another. Definitely, especially during times of difficulty. And it's good for us to evaluate our, our love right now. Evaluate the brotherly, you could say family love that we have for one another. Are you devoted to the spiritual well-being of each other? You know, when you walk in here today and you look at different people around you, do you say, you know what? 
I love these people. I'm devoted to their spiritual well-being. Are you asking each other, how are you doing? And not just like the good, but like, how are you really doing? How are you feeling? What's, how can I pray for you? And when we interact with each other, do we invite people into our life like we would family? And then the fourth attribute there, the fourth virtue that shines forth is a tender heart. This is a heart that is easily moved to show kindness and forgiveness. A heart that is easily moved to show kindness and forgiveness. This, this word is not found in many places in the New Testament, but it's found in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, a very common verse, one that kids memorize and hopefully all of us have memorized. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, and there it is, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remember the context of this? Uh, Paul was telling them, hey, you got to put off these things. You need to put on these things and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so what is he saying we should put off? If you look at the verse previous to that, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know, we are a church that's full of imperfect people. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm not going to go to that church. You know, there's a bunch of hypocrites there. And it's like, well, go ahead, welcome. Because <laughs> there are times when we don't live how Christ wants us to live. Sometimes we sin actually against each other. In fact, I would even say it this way. The question is not if we are going to sin against each other or not. The question is when we do sin against each other, how do we respond? And if we respond with bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and malice, that is not the way of Christ. How does Christ want us to respond? Well, he wants us to respond by being kind to one another and tender-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us. I don't think that means we overlook sin, but we put people's sin against us in perspective. And what's that, what's that perspective? It's that I have sinned against God. How has God treated me? He's been tender-hearted towards me. He's been kind to me. He's actually forgiven me. And so I have that perspective, and then I look at other people. I say, I'm not going to re- respond in bitterness. How can I do that? How can I respond in malice? How can I respond to that? I need to respond like Christ wants me to respond, with a tender heart, a heart that is easily moved to show kindness and forgiveness. And the last attribute there is we're to be like Christ to the church with a humble mind, with a humble mind. It says at the end of verse eight, we are to have that kind of mind. The attitude of humility is really the foundation for love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And so love is this idea that we, we sacrifice our rights for the good of another person. But with that comes humility. In order to truly love someone, you have to go low to exalt God high. And so that's what really, I think, humility is. A humble mind is willing to go low to exalt Christ. And Christ, he is obviously the great example of this, right? Here he is, God on high, and he takes the form of a human, remains God, but serves humanity and steps into this wicked world. He lived that life of humility, and he demonstrated it. He taught it. Remember, the disciples are at the last meal, they're arguing, who's the greatest? I'm going to be greater. I'm going to be greater, you know? And Jesus says, well, actually, Jesus does. He takes a towel, and he serves them, and he shows them that those who are truly great are those who serve. Last week, we had different individuals in the church clean this church, and I think, for me, the greatest joy in that 
wasn't just seeing a clean church. It was seeing people who are elders and people, young children, at all different stages of life, different people coming here and serving and doing something that, you know, cleaning toilets and wiping baseboards isn't really what people would consider great. But in my opinion, greatness is not the person who stands up here, right? It's not me or whoever's up here. If you consider this great, you have a wrong idea of greatness. Greatness is willing to go low to lift up Christ on high. And so this is how we are to treat one another. This is, this is the, the light of God's glory that should shine out from the church. And then secondly, how, do we, how can the church glorify God while suffering? Second, the church is to radiate the heat of blessing to the world. Radiate the heat of blessing. Again, I'm kind of giving this picture of a fire that's burning, and we are blessing those who, who come in contact and come near us. First Peter um, 3, 9 here gives the negative, the, the natural reaction we have when we're persecuted. Look at verse 9. He says, don't repay, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Boy, that's hard to do, isn't it? For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What is our natural response to do when someone comes against us or someone hurts us? What is it? We want revenge, right? We want to get revenge on them. Repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. We as Americans, we love the feeling of revenge. I think a lot of people love the feeling of revenge, but particularly in America, we see that. I was reading about the Dodgers game. Anyone disappointed about that? And, it, you know, I was, you know, reading, I saw some, some videos and, you know, I tried to weep with those who weep and, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I was looking on Twitter, I typed Dodgers and some of the things in, and actually I found out there's a lot of people who really hate the Dodgers. Did you know, have you experienced anyone that really hates the Dodgers? And I actually realized, I think this, I think sometimes people cheer against teams more than they cheer for their own team. You know, so the Dodgers are in, and so now all the Giants, they're cheering against the Dodgers, Right? And they probably all cheered, or whoever is, is that the great rival? I mean, I'm kind of a, ignorant a little bit to this, but whoever the great rivals are, then you're going to cheer against the team that beat your team, right? And in other words, you kind of want to get revenge on them. And I, that's just kind of a fun way in our society, but the point is our society loves that kind of thing. We love the, on the, on the sitcoms, people love the quick-witted comebacks, the person who can really get them, you know, and the crowd goes, ooh, you know, and they get them, or, or more on a, on a serious note, I was reading a study that says revenge has been cited as a factor in one in five murders that occur in developed countries. So we're considered a developed country, Europe, I'm not certain who else is involved in that, but one in five murders are because of revenge. In a study that was done a long time ago, 2002, doesn't seem that long ago, does it? Well, to the old people, I guess. But they studied between 1974 and, two, and 2000, three in five school shootings in the U.S. were done out of vengeance, to get revenge. And the world tells us, and our own flesh tells us, that we're going to feel good if we can just get them back. If we can just repay evil for evil, we can get the last cutting word in. And, and actually, revenge, though, is, is sweet for the time. It tastes good, but it's like a sweet poison that destroys your own soul. Remember when I played soccer, there was a guy on the team that he always tried to belittle me, and not always, but he many times tried to belittle me, and he had, you know, these 
cutting comments he would make. And I can remember like laying in bed at night and thinking, okay, if he says this, what's the next thing I can say to really make fun of him and really cut him down, you know? You ever had those kind of thoughts? And you're thinking, this person did this to me. How can I get them back and do this? And I can remember that, that's so stressful. It's, there's so much tension that was in my heart during that time. And that's the natural response. It's actually an ungodly response. And so how does God want us to respond? He says, listen, we should shine forth with the heat of blessing. He says in verse nine, on the contrary, what? Bless, bless. This word bless is in the present tense. So this is an ongoing action. We're to continue to bless those who persecute us. And the idea of blessing here is really, I think, a reference back to the Old Testament blessing. And so you, actually, I'm not going to be able to have time to go through this. Did I even put these references up here? Yeah. You can see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blesses the man and woman. And so you, you see this, those who are in relationship with God, God blesses them. And then, of course, when they break the relationship with God, when they break God's uh, covenant and his commands, then God curses them. But then throughout the rest of the New Testament, those whom God redeems and brings into relationship with them, he blesses them. So you can see that in Genesis with Abraham. God blesses Abraham. And he has that blessing upon them. He blesses Israel. And the idea of blessing is really goodwill towards the lost world in word and action with the desire that they will come into relationship with God. So, so God blesses his people and when we bless, it's the idea that we, we want that for them as well. We want them to experience the blessing of relationship with God. It's not saying they have that relationship. It's saying God has blessed us with this relationship, and we want to then, therefore, respond in blessing. In fact, you see this in the, in the Old Testament when the father would lay hands on his son, his firstborn son. He would bless him, and what was he doing? He was saying, this son has my favor. This son is in relationship with me. He gets the promises of what it means to be a firstborn son. So what you see down back in 1 Peter 3, 9, what you see here is he's saying, you should bless. So bless is this present tense action of obedience towards those who persecute us. Then look at verse 9. He says, for to this you were called. And so this is a look back at the effectual calling of God uh, to call us to salvation. So blessing is present tense. For this to you are called is looking back really at when, the time when God blessed us with salvation. And then he says that you may obtain a blessing. And this looks forward to the future, to the blessing of eternity. So you kind of see this present tense where blessing and we look back to when God blessed us with salvation and we look forward in the hope of the blessing of our inheritance. And let me just break down a couple of these phrases to help us understand this. Again, blessing is, is a demonstration of goodwill. We want these people to experience the blessing of God. We recognize the world around us is under the, the curse of God. They are not going to experience the blessings of eternity and the blessings of Christ because they haven't believed in Jesus Christ. But we want them to, right? We want them to. So we, we bless them, and the idea is we want them to experience this. Stephen, when he was being persecuted, he was being stoned. What did he do? He blessed them. How did he, how did he do that? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. Paul, when he was writing the uh, book of Philippians, he said uh, he wanted the prison guards around him, those who were causing him pain, he wanted them to come to Christ. 
In fact, in Philippi, we actually saw that, right? The Philippian jailer, the one who locked him in prison, was the one who Paul led to Christ. And the point is this. From the apostles and even from Jesus Christ, their words and their prayers and their actions were that of blessing to those who reviled them and perpetrated evil upon them. Of course, the apostles did that following the pattern of Christ. And he says, to this you were called. Just look at a couple of verses with me. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You see this idea of calling there in verse 9 where he says, 1 Peter 2, 9, you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here you see the idea that the calling of God transfers us from the kingdom of sin and darkness to the kingdom of God's light. And then if you look down in chapter 2, verse 20, he again references this call. So in verse 9, he kind of looks back to the calling of us being saved. Verse 20, look at the middle of that verse. He says, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for this you have been called. To what? To be saved, but also to experience a life of suffering enduring it, doing good, following the pattern of Christ, because Christ also suffered for you. And then go to chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter 5, 10. Again, we see this calling here as well. So 1 Peter 2, 9, it was looking to the past of his calling us. And we look at verse uh, 21 of chapter 2, and it's, it's recognizing that he's called us to suffer and endure like Christ did. And then look at 1 Peter 5, 10. He says, but after you have suffered a little while, the grace, sorry, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So the calling of God will finally, at some point in the future, take us home to glory. But again, notice the beginning of that, that verse. He says, but, and after you suffered for a little while. My, my point of saying this is this, is when Paul or Peter references calling, he's saying, listen, God has sovereignly called you to salvation, and part of that means you're going to experience a life of suffering. There's going to be a life of difficulty. It's only for a little while, and, and we go, oh, good, on earth? Well, while you're alive, okay? Because your life on earth is a little while, but eternity is forever. And we face some suffering, sometimes we can think, Hey, what's wrong with me? You know, what's wrong with my life? What's happening? I mean, this surely isn't God's plan. But when we think that way, we're actually thinking contrary to the scriptures. Again, we shine the brightest in this world when the world is the darkest. And so when we suffer, we look back to the calling to salvation and recognize that God has sovereignly put us in the place that we are and the suffering we're experiencing. God has called us to that and we trust him during this time. And look at verse 9, he says, 1 Peter 3, 9, we are to bless so that you may obtain a blessing. The word obtain here probably may be better translated as inherit. And if you have an NASB, I think it translates it that way. And you might look at this, though, and maybe think, is this works-based salvation? Like he's saying, if you bless, then you're going to get to go to heaven and experience the blessing of God. And the answer is no. The blessing is inherited. It's not worked for. It's inherited. There's a big difference between the two. 
you know, if, if, you're, if you get an inheritance, you didn't do anything for it. You get that because you're in the family, right? The family um, blesses you with that inheritance. Really, the father blesses you with that inheritance in a Jewish sense. So what Peter is teaching is that those who are blessed by God, in other words, those who are children of God, they bless others. So in the past, those who have been blessed to be children of God, they in the present, they bless others. And if you are blessing others in the present, it proves that you will inherit the blessing in the future. Does that make sense? There's a sense, though, when you read this verse, it should cause some people to be very fearful about if they're going to receive the blessing. Because if you live your life, if you live your life in bitterness, in malice, and in revenge, according to this verse, are you going to receive the blessing of being with God forever? Again, it's not works-based salvation, but saying it's like there's a sense where when you are blessing people, it's recognizing that you have been blessed by God and you have the hope then of blessing in the future. If you're not blessing people, if your life is about revenge and getting back at people, you should probably step back and ask yourself, am I truly a child of God? Because I think the answer to the scripture would be, no, you're not. And so it should cause some people to consider if they actually are a believer or not. Now you see that there's three more verses and you're getting scared, I'm certain. But don't be, don't be scared because we're actually wrapping up here. Because what I think Peter does here in the next three verses is he, I know he's quoting Psalm 34. And I think what he's doing is he's actually supporting his teaching with Psalm 34. Psalm 34 really is, in 1 Peter, Peter's favorite psalm. In fact, some, I read one commentary that said that Psalm 34 was, or, or 1 Peter, uh, the book of 1 Peter is actually a sermon based off of Psalm 34. Maybe Peter went around and preached, and maybe he preached much of this, and he did it based on Psalm 34. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's an idea. But definitely he used this psalm a lot. Of course, this is a psalm that Carl read this morning in our scripture reading. King David, he was persecuting, I'm sorry, King Saul was persecuting David. David had everything taken away from him from Saul, even his own wife, right? So he, he was on the run. He was... Everyone had turned against him, and David was in a desperate situation. In fact, so desperate, he actually fled to the land where Goliath's family lived. Remember Goliath? Big, hulking guy who had DNA. You know, his family had the same DNA. So here he walks into the Philistine country, goes before the Philistine king, and he's so desperate, he's so low, that he actually goes to those people instead of his own people. In other words, he's under great persecution. And if you read through Psalm 34 again with, with, this, um, with the thoughts of 1 Peter, you can see how Peter uses this psalm in this book here, in this epistle here. Look down at verse 10. In fact, let me, as you look at verse 10 in Psalm 34, David says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So David considers himself to be a blessed person. And then later on he says, verse 10, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I, I believe Peter used this text to support his own teaching. So he already has said, don't do evil, right? Don't have reviling for reviling. Don't return evil for evil. And so he, that's what he says there in verse 10. In verse 11, David, uh, here written by Peter, but quoting David, 
Verse 11, let him turn away from evil. So don't do evil to someone, but actually what? Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And isn't that what David did? I mean, you look at David, and that was his life of persecution. David actually had an opportunity to kill Saul, right? Saul went to go to the bathroom in a cave. Kind of a funny story to think about. But David could have killed him there. He didn't do it. He actually instead pursued what? He pursued peace. He sought peace, and he pursued it. And why did David do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's not, that's not really helpful for his life, right? I mean, he could have become king instantly. His problems would have gone away. Why did David not return evil for evil against Saul? Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Let me give the answer before I read the whole verse. It was because David had a relationship with God. Notice that in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The ears, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Because David was in a relationship with God, David knew that God was present with him. God saw him. God heard him. And listen, for David, that mattered more than anything else. His relationship with God mattered more than the feeling of getting good revenge on Saul. David cared more about what God thought than his own fleshly desire for revenge or his own comfort in this earthly ease. And that is a person that really has great faith, isn't it? Now look at verse 10. There's something very curious that David says there. And then Peter quotes. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now what's, what's he speaking about there? I think he's referring to the future life of eternity and the good days of future blessing. In other words, he's not, this is not a health wealth kind of thing. It's like, if you really desire to have like a lot of money in your life and good health and life go really goes smooth, then you just do these things and then you're going to have a great life. It's not what he's saying. It's actually, I think he's referring to the eternal future life when we're going to love eternal life and be with the Lord and see the good days of being with our Savior. And so he, he, he's saying here, he's saying that if you really want the life of blessing in the future, then you will live a life in relationship with God now. We live, again, like I said, in a very dark world, don't we? And now more than ever, now more than ever, Lighthouse Bible Church, we need to be the light for Christ. We need to train our, our children and our grandchildren to shine as lights. And that means that our church needs to look at each other and say, how can we show Christ's love to one another. And we need to look at our world and say, how can we bless those who come against us? Let me finish with this, this last story. I should have spelled this out here to figure out how to pronounce it. Does anyone know how to pronounce that, that country? Tajikistan, is that how you say it? Tajikistan, who knows? It's an it's a old Soviet Union um, country, and they actually operate much the same way. It's majority Muslim. There's a pastor there named Pastor Bakram. On April 10th, 2017, he was pastoring a church called the Good News of Grace Protestant Church. He was a former Muslim. He followed the um, Islamic faith, and he converted to Christ, and so did she. So that's his wife right up there. And and they were enjoying uh, pastoring this church. They had their own little building there. They had a, an assembly but there is a lot of opposition in that country to the gospel. In fact, the old KJB is now called the 
KNB. So it's a new group that basically are officers that go around and try to restrict Christians from practicing their faith. Now, on April 10th, they, 2017, they interrupted the church. They began to beat church members. They insulted them and swore at them. They demanded that the believers renounce their faith. Afterwards, some of the church members were fired from their jobs. The secret police pressured church leaders, and eventually he, they closed the doors in March. Pastor Bakram actually decided to go to another area and continue the church. And then in July of 2017, they arrested him, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. He has a wife. He has three teenage children. And this was obviously quite shocking to them. She was now left without any means of provision. Her children were afraid. They didn't sleep for the first couple of weeks. And they were, the church was rattled by this. What were they going to do? They were experiencing real persecution here. But the church did something very special. And that is they turned in and they began to care for each other. They cared for this pastor's wife. They, they came and they prayed with their kids. Some of the, like I said, some people lost their jobs, so they all came around each other and began to pray with each other and take care of each other. A, a lady named Tamara, whose husband was a pastor, but he was shot for his faith in Christ. She came in and kind of gave leadership to the, the pastor's wife and comforted her during this time. And the pastor was taken to a prison about eight, eight hours away, and so some of the church members would take that trek and bring him food and clothes. And what's, what's amazing is, is the testimony of this church started to really shine forth during this time. They still tried to gather in different places and they, they showed love for each other. And they actually, in an amazing way, showed goodwill towards those who were persecuting them. And I, I read this story in this magazine and I thought, what a great illustration of this text right here of a church glorifying God by shining the light of their character and blessing with their conduct to those who are persecuting them. The pastor, he wrote a letter to his children and to the church, and he said this, look up Acts 20, 27, and memorize this verse during this time of persecution. I'll read this and leave this with you. He says, Acts 20, 27 says, I do not count my life as any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord to testify of the grace of God. May that be our testimony as well. May we as a church, may we take church serious, right? May we take this world serious. May we really take the gospel of Jesus Christ serious. May we be the church, love each other, and bless those who come against us. Let's pray. As we bow our heads in prayer here, I'm going to ask you as church, as a church family, if you would just pray in your own heart. If you're older, in other words, if you're a grandparent or maybe even if you're middle-aged and you have children or grandchildren, would you at this time just pray for them and pray for our country and ask God to give you the wisdom and grace to be able to equip them to be able to live in the world that might come against them and give them the courage to stand for Christ. And if you're a young person in here, let me ask you just in your own heart to ask yourself, am I willing to stand for Christ in the face of opposition? And ask God to give you the grace to do that now 
and throughout the rest of your life. Father, we, we come before you as the one who is sovereign, who has called us as your children to, to salvation, which means that there's a time of difficulty. There's a time of pressure. There's a time when, when we are uncomfortable. There's a time of brokenness, which actually, Lord, is when you can greatly use us. I think about David who was brought so low and Lord, you did that so that he could honor you in such a wonderful way with these Psalms, but also being lifted up as king. I think about Jesus who was brought low so that we could have eternal life. And Jesus, now you are on high. You are lifted up as our Lord. So we place our faith, our full confidence that you are the one, Lord, that is moving everything in our country, in our world. You, you appoint kings, you bring down kings, you, you appoint leaders and bring down leaders. It is our prayer, it is our prayer as a church that you'll give us freedom in our country. Will you put leaders in place that will allow us to freely gather, to freely worship Christ, to, to be able to really practice the morality of the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit without, without being forced out of whatever employment we have or whatever business or institution that we have established. God, give us that. But above all else, above even that, give us grace to endure and strength to follow Christ. Give us love for each other. And God, may we have a heart that recognizes that you have blessed us and we want to bless those, even those who come against us. Lord, bless those in our country, who are even now plotting the end of churches and the, the suffering of Christians, I pray, God, that we will have a heart that wants to see them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We're not better than them. No one in this room is better than them. We are all sinners, and you have saved us by your grace. And so, God, move in our country, and we pray Please, please bring a revival to the hearts of people. May we see souls turn from their sin. May we see them turn to 